There's a picture that dates back to the late 2nd century. It was discovered, if I remember correctly, in the 19th century. It's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, piece of artwork that depicts the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, it's often referred to as graffiti. It's found in the home. It was found in, the, in a Roman home. And if you looked at the picture, it essentially looks like two stick figures. There's one man who is standing at the foot of a cross with a man hanging upon the cross. This man who's at the foot of the cross has what appears to be one hand raised and it appears to be some sort of posture of worship. And then the man who is on the cross, interestingly enough, intended to depict Jesus, does not have the head of a man. He has the head of a donkey. And the writing that was found beneath this picture reads in the Greek as Alexamenos worships his God. Could be rendered as Alexamenos worships God. It's not hard to see what the artist, if you could even use that kind of terminology, was meaning to depict. He was calling Alexamenos and Alexamenos' faith foolish. Look how foolish this looks. Look how foolish Alexamenos looks. He, he's worshiping this one who's on a cross and clearly he is depicted to be a fool with the way in which he's depicted on the cross. And you can understand that even when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. He noted that it would be foolishness. Foolishness for pagans and Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to the Jews that Jesus would die on the cross. It was foolishness to the Greeks and to the pagans and to the Romans to see this one who is identified as the Son of God, yet humiliated by the state of Rome in the most degrading way that they knew how to degrade someone via Roman crucifixion. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that the Savior who is depicted as being crucified on the cross is also the same Savior who rose from the grave three days later. The picture of what He did didn't end with dying on the cross. See, Jesus, during His earthly ministry, you look through the Gospel of Matthew alone, we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew today, but you can see in the other Gospel accounts as well, repeatedly He told His disciples that He would die, and repeatedly He told His disciples that He would rise. And this was in agreement with the Scriptures, as Paul clearly notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. So, to use language from the Apostle Paul, if Christ is not raised... Our faith is futile. It's worthless. If Christ is not raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But also, if you note that, the inverse is true. The converse is true. The propositions are reversed and they are true. If Christ is raised from the dead, and indeed He is, then we are not still in our sins, those who are in Christ. And that is good news. We would gladly stand alongside of Alexamenos because we know the end of the story was not the Savior being crucified on the cross. The end of the story isn't even the empty tomb. He would ascend and the story's not over yet. In fact, it's going to go on for all of eternity and there are going to be those from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are gathered around the throne celebrating the Lamb who was slain and raised and ascended and coronated as the Son of God. So contrary 
to the supposition that belief in this Savior who was crucified and resurrected, contrary to the supposition that that is folly, there is a mountain of evidence that witnesses to its veracity. As J.C. Ryle noted, we have reason to be very thankful that this wonderful truth of our religion is so clearly and fully proved. It is a striking circumstance that of all the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so incontrovertibly established as the fact that He rose again. The wisdom of God who knows the unbelief of human nature has provided a great cloud of witnesses on the subject. Never was there a fact which the friends of God were so slow to believe as the resurrection of Christ. Never was there a fact which the enemies of God were so anxious to disprove. And yet, in spite of the unbelief of professed friends and the enmity of foes, the fact was thoroughly established. Its evidences will always appear to be a fair and impartial mind unanswerable. It would be impossible to prove anything in the world if we refuse to believe that Jesus rose again. So we will consider some of the evidence this morning. But before we consider the evidence, we'll consider the events that surrounded the event of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the narrative, we'll not only study the event, we'll see evidences, and then by the time we get to the end of the message, we will draw out some implications for us. We begin in Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61, where we read, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now at first glance for some, this section can appear simply informational, transitional, right? After all, it's between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But it is not simply informational and it is not simply transitional. The invisible hand of God's providence continued to write out the story that he was to have written with these events that were taking place. I want to note a few things to you. The first thing I want you to know is that the Romans were known to leave the corpses of those who were crucified on the cross. That's what they were known to do. It's pretty ghastly to think about. It would serve as a great deterrent for those who didn't want to be on the wrong side of Roman justice, right? Think about it. You're walking through certain places, through the, through the streets of the city of Jerusalem or Galilee, and you're just seeing in these places as you're walking, you're seeing people on the side of the road hanging upon crosses. And if somebody was hanging upon the cross, it wouldn't be all too long being outside, subject to the weather, subject to wild animals, whether it be birds or other kinds of animals. It wouldn't be long until the bodies of those who were on the crosses began to decay and decompose. And it was a clear sign to everyone who saw them. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Roman justice. This could be you. 
But it was also customary that if somebody wanted to take down the body, that could happen as well. If there were family members, say for instance, who said, I don't want my loved one to be hanging on the cross. I want this person to get a proper burial. That would happen as well. And we see very clearly in the case before us that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who's noted to be a rich man. But when you look through the gospel accounts, we find out more about this man. He wasn't just a rich man. He was a man who, as we saw in our text, had become a disciple of Jesus. Interestingly, this man served on the Jewish council. He was part of the Sanhedrin. When you look in the other gospel accounts, you could see that he did not give consent to the deed of the council. Remember the kangaroo court when they were trying to assemble false witnesses to be gathered and they couldn't find witnesses who agreed and they finally said, this man said that he would destroy the temple and in three days he would raise it up again, which he did not say. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't going to destroy the temple. They were. And he was telling them what he would do. And then we remember what happened, Caiaphas questioning Jesus, and Jesus affirms his identity as the Son of God, and the kangaroo court got what they wanted, the Jewish council. Well, Joseph of Arimathea wasn't going along with that. He is identified in Luke's gospel as being a good and just man. He was somebody who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was somebody who ultimately, we know, was justified by faith. And he was also a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in John's Gospel, John chapter 19, verse 38. And here he is showing up to do his part to see that Jesus has a proper burial. I think he's a good reminder to us also that secret disciples cannot stay secret forever. (laughs) That disciples are meant to be known as disciples. Light is not meant to be kept under a bushel. That light is meant to shine. And even for some, if it takes some time, inevitably a secret disciple will become a known disciple, regardless of the cost. Think about it. In this moment, the disciples aren't the ones who are going to ask for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Joseph of Arimathea. And notice when he came. The text says, when it was evening. That's evening before the Sabbath day. I think that's important to note for at least two reasons. One is not explicitly said in the text, and one conclusion we could draw rather clearly in light of what the text does tell us here and in other places. The first thing I want you to note is this. Jesus' death on the cross was a visible sign that he had come under the wrath of God. That was clear. When the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Right? It's not like a voodoo curse that's coming under the curse, the punishment, the wrath of Almighty God. So when Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us as it is written. And now he's quoting Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, the end of it. He says, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And that would be synonymous with the cross. And so there you have in this moment, Jesus Christ hanging in the place of sinners. So between the fact that He's hanging on a tree, hanging on the cross, between the fact that He's crying out Psalm 22 verse 1 while He's on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Between the fact that the the land had gone dark for the space of three hours, all of this was emblematic of the fact that He was the one who was coming under the wrath of Almighty God. But if you read the first half, of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. The first half 
speaks like this, saying that his body, the one who is hanging upon a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So although it is not explicitly stated in the text, isn't it interesting, and I would argue rather unsurprising, that even after Jesus' death, the providence and the sovereignty of God was ensuring that His body would in no way bring defilement upon the land. Well, what else is happening here? More explicitly, the quick burial was providentially appointed by God so as to accomplish the timeline that God had appointed in the timeline that Jesus spoke of. That He would be dead for three days and that He would raise on the third. So it might just seem at first glance informational and transitional, but the sovereign God of heaven is still writing with His invisible hand. He's writing out the story that He wants us all to see. Second, I want you to note that even this, this burial, Joseph of Arimathea going, requesting the body of Jesus, and seeing that it's buried, seeing that the body is buried in his tomb, was in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It was in the book of the prophet Isaiah that we are told the following, and they made his grave, speaking of the coming Messiah, speaking of the suffering servant, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. They made his grave with the wicked. Well, that's the end they had for Jesus. You know where he's going to die? He's going to die among criminals on a cross. They made his grave with the wicked. And if it was up to them, he would stay there. His grave would be with the wicked. But that wasn't where his grave would be. For a time, yes. But a rich man who had a tomb that was never used before. You can't mistake the person who comes out of the tomb with anybody else. There was nobody who had ever been in it. It was a new tomb. This person was a rich man. And so, although they made his grave with the wicked at his death, yet he was nonetheless buried with the rich, you might say, in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Third, I want you to note that the burial actually happened. It's historical. In all four of the Gospel accounts, we see that Jesus Christ was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is further evidence. It's not the only evidence, but it's further evidence that Jesus did not swoon. He didn't faint. More about that later. It wasn't like, you know, he just fainted on the cross. He never really died. Or, you know, somebody else like, took his place. Like He was hanging on the cross, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like people switched, and nobody noticed that he got switched. No, no, no. This is evidence that the Jesus Christ who has died, who Joseph of Arimathea knew, he was the same one that Joseph of Arimathea took down from the cross. When you look at Luke 23, and you could see that he's put into the grave. So besides the fact that Romans were excellent, if you will, at execution. They knew what they were doing, and when they pierced Jesus' side, it was clear that he was dead. You also have corroborating evidence, like Joseph of Arimathea, burying Jesus. With a whole lot of pounds of spices, along with Nicodemus. All of this is confirming the fact that he was dead. He didn't just faint. He didn't pass out. He died. And this is further historical evidence of that. Not to mention, by the way, think about Matthew's first first readers. If this didn't happen, like Joseph of Arimathea was a real man. He was really on the Jewish council. So if this didn't happen, people can go to Joseph. Like, Joseph, I read in that writing that you took the body of Jesus down from the cross. Like, did you do that? No, I didn't do that. I don't know why they're saying that. You don't have that at all. Because he did. 
And everybody knew it, as word got around anyway. Well, now Joseph buries Jesus, and then in verse 62, Matthew picks up on the events that transpired on the following day. In verses 62 through 66, we read, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. So here we see that the chief priests and Pilate continue to work together, if you will. Doubtless, there was unwillingness on both parts. There was no love lost between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. But they had, in this case, reasons to accommodate one another. In the case of the Jews, they had reasons not to kind of uh, go and bring charges against Pilate to Caesar or to cause him any kind of trouble. And Pilate had reasons to want to keep the peace for his own personal benefit so he would do what the Jewish leadership wanted. And isn't it interesting that the Jewish leadership here seems more interested in Jesus' words than his own disciples do? They're concerned. They're like, you know, he said he was going to rise again. And it's not that they're thinking, like, this might actually happen. They're thinking, well, the disciples might come and take the body. But why would they want to do that at the end of the day? I can understand them thinking, like, maybe they'll do that. But really, why would you want to grab a dead body and say, he's alive, he's alive. I don't know where you think you're going with that. But nonetheless, they talk to Pilate, and Pilate's like, fine, you got what you want. Here's the guard, you know, set a seal, make it as secure as you know how. And look at this, all the machinations of those who arrayed themselves against the God of heaven and his son. Everything that they're doing is just going to furnish history with further evidence of the reality of the resurrection. They're jumping through these hoops. They're doing what they know to do. And at the end of the day, they are just providing more witnesses of the reality of the resurrection for every generation that would hear the proclamation of the resurrection subsequently. And think of the sovereignty of God. He could take His enemies and He could take what they're doing and He could sovereignly and sinlessly use the rebellion of His enemies to accomplish His purposes and magnify His glory. And you have that happening right here unstoppable sovereignty. Well, here in Matthew 27, these men take up arms against Yahweh and His anointed, to use language from Psalm 2, and they actually become pawns and instruments in further testifying to the reality that they were hoping to stop in some way, shape, or form. And as a quick note, as a quick aside, I think it's worth us taking inventory of all the times the Scripture teaches us this very lesson. You think about when the church was persecuted in Acts chapter 8. The church was basically at that point in Jerusalem, and then persecution happens, and what happens? The church spreads out, and they begin preaching the word everywhere. So, you might say, 
what the enemy or what the opposers of God's truth meant for evil, God used for good. He used it as a means to spread the gospel. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul, who loved the Thess- Thessalonians, he admonished them like a father, yet he was tender with them like a mother nursing her children, to use language from 1 Thessalonians. And we see that he wanted to see them, but he couldn't get to see them at that point. He was hindered, and you see even the language, he was hindered by the enemy. So what did he do? He wrote them a letter that has been used to edify the church and bring new life to those who were lost in darkness for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the scripture is replete with evidence of how what man or Satan or demons might mean for evil, God can take it and He could use it for good. He can bring beauty out of ashes. And He can take the rebellion of rebels and use it to accomplish His purposes. Well, that brings us to the opening verses of Matthew 28. We'll begin in verse 1 where we read, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. They came to see the tomb, but I think for a moment we should take a good look at them. We see two Marys who are identified here. The first one, Mary Magdalene, she is the Mary who is identified in Luke chapter 8. We see her in Luke chapter 8 verse 2. She's the one out of whom Jesus cast out seven demons. That's who this Mary was. She wasn't the only one who was there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, she was also there. We also see when we combine the accounts and we look at what else we could find, we see that there were other women there as well, some of whom are specifically identified. And this is interesting because if you go back in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew 27, you are going to see that the women were standing afar off and they were watching as Jesus was crucified. And then we see some of the women referred to shortly thereafter as being there when Jesus is buried. And now, as the first day of the week, the the beginning gleams of that day are beginning to shine, and here they are, and they are at the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find great encouragement from the steadfastness And the courage that we see in these godly women. And I think implicitly we also get a witness to the veracity of the truthfulness of Matthew's account. Why? Well, because if you were making up a story that you wanted people to believe, you wouldn't make, in the Jewish culture of that day, you wouldn't make women the first witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been noted by many that in the Jewish culture of that day, that a woman's testimony within the court of law would, at least in many cases from what I understand, be unadmissible. Inadmissible. So if you were trying to make this up, you wouldn't say, you know what, we're going to choose individuals that people in society wouldn't even have in the court of law and give testimony, and we're going to make them the first witnesses. That will be really compelling for the Jewish people. Are they really going to believe this? Not if you're trying to make up a story. But you say that if it's the truth. And if you have nothing to hide. Why did Matthew write that the women were there at the tomb? Because they were. They were there at the tomb. They were there. And I want us to draw something, I think a little bit of an observation from this. I want to encourage you to not be surprised by the kind of people that Jesus uses. 
Don't be surprised by the kind of people that Jesus uses. He is, after all, not bound by the conventions of human beings. Think about who the angels came to. And they hailed the great news of the one who was born in Bethlehem. Shepherds, lowly shepherds, who are towards the bottom rung of the societal ladder. They get to be the ones who get to go see the Savior who had been born in Bethlehem. And then they got to go carry the news about what had happened. And they're like the bottom, bottom portion of the ladder of the society. And here we have the first witnesses being women. <coughs> So don't be surprised. You may esteem yourself to be no one. And if anything, that would put you in a better position of qualification. Oh, God can use a man like Paul, doubtless. And God can use a man like Joseph of Arimathea, a man who was prominent and schooled and a man who was rich. But so often he chooses the things that are not to confound the things that are. And he'll choose the base things of the world, the unknown. I take encouragement in this. Because when I think back to my high school years, for instance, my friend was running for president of the uh, school. We were seniors, and he wanted to run for president, and he reached out to me, I believe, and he asked me if I would run as vice president with him. And I said, sure. And so we had another uh, senior run with us, and I don't know if he ran for uh, secretary or treasurer, not that you do so much. What do you really do as the treasurer of uh, you know, high school student council, at least not much when, when I was there? Um, no. No offense to anybody who does it subsequently and does a lot. I don't know. I'm just talking about my own experience there. And then we had someone else who ran for either secretary or treasurer with us. He was a junior. He was a basketball player. He was pretty popular. And I remember, interestingly, in high school, there would be like competing campaigns against one another. And the campaign that was against us, they put on the wall, I believe it was on the third floor in our school, they put a little poster. And I don't remember if there was 10 things or 15 things or 20 things, but there was somewhere between... Somewhere between 10 and 20 reasons why you shouldn't vote for my friend as president. And I think it was like number seven, somewhere in there, was the line, who is George Epolito anyway? <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, that hurts. Oh, it's a good point. Really, really, it's a good point. But that's, that's, hard. that's harsh. You're not holding back. See, politics could be dirty even in high school. Um, but I think about that, and I'm like, you know what? At the end of the day, that, that, that's who, who is George Epolito anyway? And isn't it fitting that I would be called to proclaim the great news? I'm a nobody proclaiming the ultimate somebody. And in a sense, at the end of the day, that's who we all are. And we shouldn't be surprised when God chooses people who are esteemed to be nobodies because he so does that kind of thing. He's not bound to even do that. But that's the way in which he works so often. And I think the women at the tomb are a reminder to us of that. They're examples of fidelity. They're examples of courage and compassion. And compassion. Well, they're not coming, by the way, to see Jesus alive. We know that much. They're coming to see the tomb. And as they're going on the way to the tomb... Mark chapter 16, verse 3, says that they were wondering who was going to roll the stone away from the tomb for them. If you gave them a hundred guesses as to who was going to roll away the stone, I don't think they would have gotten the right answer. But isn't it amazing? They don't even know at this point, it appears, what, what's going on at the tomb. They, they, they don't know that there's a, a Roman guard there. They, got, they have bigger issues to worry about than just who's going to roll the stone. But they don't know that. So they have a problem that they know of, and they have problems that they don't know of, the, the, the seal that's there and the Roman guard that's there, 
And isn't it amazing that God would take care of both the problem that they knew of and the problems that they didn't know of? He so often does that kind of thing for his people. And so we get to beginning of verse 2 and we read, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. A seismos megas. <laughs> a great, a large earthquake. Or the word can literally be rendered, a great shaking occurred. What caused this great shaking? We don't have to guess. The rest of the verse tells us. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So it appears what caused the great shaking was the descent of the angel of the Lord. And maybe it's that moment when the angel of the Lord hits the ground. I don't know exactly how it played itself out, but it's beautiful to begin to imagine what it actually looked like when Matthew 28, the second half of verse 2 happened. So he comes, he descends upon that place, then he rolls the stone away, and their problem was solved. (laughs) He descends right into the garden where Jesus' tomb was, hits the ground, there's a great shaking. And I just love the idea that the problem that they knew of and the problems that they didn't know of was addressed. It's fitting that an angel would be present. We know that there were angels who heralded the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in Luke chapter 2. We know that angels ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ after His 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. We know that as He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that an angel was sent to strengthen him, and how appropriate it is that an angel would be here at this moment in light of the resurrection. And after the angel rolled back the stone, do you notice what he did? He sat on it. (laughs) Now, I don't know all of what's going on there. He sat on the stone. Why? To signify, hey, I'm the one who did this. I rolled away the stone. To defy the guards there, like, you don't need to keep watch anymore. Someone else is keeping watch right now. I, 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 I don't know, but I just love that. I love that he descends, rolls away the stone, and sits on the stone. Uh, he'll be in the tomb. When you look at the other accounts, you'll see him in the tomb where Jesus was, where the linen clothes were neatly folded. Another great witness to the reality of what happened. It wasn't that somebody came in and robbed the body and unwrapped Jesus and got rid of the, the, the pounds upon pounds of spices that were there. The fact that the linen clothes were there and they were neatly folded was a witness to the reality that Jesus Christ had resurrected and the body wasn't stolen. And then there would be one angel at the top of where he was laying and one at the bottom of where he was laying. Beautiful picture. Reminiscent, perhaps, of the mercy seat. That brings us to verses 3 and 4 where this angel is described further. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So we see here that his countenance was like lightning. His appearance was like lightning. Bright. Brilliant. We think about what Matthew chapter 18 tells us. Verse 10. Jesus spoke about angels being in the presence of God and beholding the face of the Father in heaven. 
And you would imagine that if Moses, after being with God on the mountain, would come down and his face would be glowing so much that he had to put a veil to cover the glory that was coming off of his face, it would make sense that angels who are in the very presence of God would have the glory of God shining forth from them. So here's this angel with a countenance and appearance that is like lightning, speaking, I think, to the glory of God. But then also they have this one particular identified here, though we know there was more than one at the tomb. And his clothing was as white as snow. That's a familiar identification for angelic beings. You could look at Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 10, for instance. And I would think that the whiteness of the angelic garb would speak to the purity. So you have words that connote glory and purity in this angelic being who is there. And notice what happens. Seeing such a glorious thing did not lead the Roman guards to break out into him. To God be the glory. Rather, they do some shaking of their own. (laughs) They begin to shake so much, and next thing you know, they're trembling for fear of the angel, and they become like necroi. They become like dead men. So the idea is, now imagine this, these, these are Roman soldiers, so these aren't like people who are like given to being like, you know, faint-hearted and fearful. These are Roman soldiers, but all of a sudden one angel comes and his appearance is like lightning. He's glorious and they're trembling. They're trembling so much so they become like dead men. The implication appears to be they pass out and they are out cold. <laughs> Whatever fleshly courage they had, immediately melted like ice cream thrown into a furnace. <laughs> to quote again J.C. Ryle, I, 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 think this is a, um, I think this is a takeaway worth, worth observing. He said, Let us again see in this fact a type and emblem of things yet to come. What will the ungodly and the wicked do at the last day when the trumpet shall sound and Christ shall come in glory to judge the world? What will they do when they see all the dead, both small and great, coming forth from their graves, and all the angels of God assembled round the great white throne? What fears and terrors will possess their souls when they find they can no longer avoid God's presence and must at length meet Him face to face? Oh, that men were wise and would consider their latter end. Oh, that they would remember that there is a resurrection and a judgment and that there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb. See, these soldiers, they had good reason to fear. And I do think you see a contrast with what was coming because that angel is going to say something to the women that he doesn't say to the soldiers. Granted, the soldiers were out cold, so they probably wouldn't have heard it anyway at that point. But I'm just saying, he didn't say what he's about to say to the women to the soldiers. What did he say to the women? Well, verses 5 and 6 tell us, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, just as He said. Come see the place where he was lying. So, a few things to note here. First, look at what the angel said. Do not fear. They had no reason to fear. They were beloved of the Lord. They were not enemies of God. This is in clear contrast, perhaps, to the soldiers 
The language here is you. It's you plural. You might say you all. You all do not fear. And he's speaking to the women in contrast to what we don't see to the soldiers. For the women, he is a ministering spirit sent to roll away the stone. Ministering on behalf of God, doubtless, but of course, ministering to the women in this moment. Removing the obstacle that the guards could have posed to them. That obstacle was removed. Removing the stone and announcing the good news of the resurrection. Do not be afraid. He was, to use language that one angel used, a fellow servant of God, even as they were. Second, he told them, For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. This, this is, is, is an implicit observation, I would think, but I think he's calling attention here to their compassion. He's calling attention to the passionate and pious outflow of their love for the Lord. They sought Him who was crucified. Interestingly, the angel doesn't shrink back from identifying Jesus as the one who was crucified, even though within the culture it was an ignominious way to die. Jesus humbled Himself to the point of death. And Paul writes to the Philippians, even death on a cross. But the angel doesn't shrink back from that identification. It's a beautiful and a glorious thing that the love of God would condescend so low that the Son of God would die upon a cross and be crucified. Then the angel gives them good news of the resurrection. He is not here, for He has risen. The tomb is empty. He's not here. He has risen. And you notice what the angel says at the end. Just as He said... Even the angel calling attention to the truthfulness of the Son. His immutable, unshakable, unchangeable truthfulness. He is the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. He cannot do anything but speak truth. He is the truth. And the angel is calling attention to the truthfulness of his words. He rose just like he said. Every word he says is true. Every promise he has made will come to pass. He is trustworthy. Fourth, he told them, come see the place where he was lying. And come look. The tomb is empty. The body is not here. There's no arguing it. So to go back to something I mentioned before, did Jesus swoon? Is the swoon theory actuality? No, the swoon theory is not actuality. It is illogical. It's illogical to think that Jesus swooned. And you're like, swooned? What does that mean? Is that like something a swan does? No. no we're, talking about, we're talking about fainting. Somebody who passes out and then, you know, he kind of passes out but then comes back to consciousness sometime thereafter. No, Jesus Christ died. After being scourged, after being beaten, after being crucified, after having committed His Spirit to the Father, Father, into Your hands, I commit My Spirit. He breathed His last. The Roman soldiers took a spear and thrust it through His side. The flow of water and blood further confirming the fact that He was dead. He was buried. The Romans being well experienced in the work of execution. All of this confirmed that Jesus was dead and buried. But what about the lie that the Jewish leadership used as their contingency plan. 
Right? You go on and you read on and you see what happens shortly thereafter this. The Jewish leaders end up telling the guards, this is what you're going to say. They pay them a large sum of money and they say to say, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And that, that got traction in different parts of the empire where Jewish people were, we even see in the second century that kind of argumentation being used when a, a Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, is having a dialogue with a Jewish man, Trifo. So what they were hoping to accomplish here, they accomplished. The lie got out and the lie spread. But does the lie make sense? Are, are, are we to think, when we just look at that at face value, okay, we know what happened to the body, the Roman guards, following the lead of the Jewish leadership. We know what happened to the body while we were sleeping. <laughs> the disciples came and took the body. How do you know the disciples came and took the body if you were sleeping? All right, so problem number one right there, right? And so <laughs> problem number two is that now we're assuming that the disciples are like some kind of special ops unit who could get in and they could get out. And we're also assuming that the Roman soldiers who were sent to guard the tomb, all of them who were there at that moment, just all were sleeping at the same time. And as a stone was being rolled, and I, granted, I guess a stone could roll more quietly than maybe we might imagine, but we're to really think that the special ops disciples who were in locked doors for fears of, fear of the Jews, when we see them a little bit later on, we are to think that somehow they committed this special ops to rescue a dead body and they got past all of the Roman and soldiers who were sleeping? If you want to believe that, <laughs> I would commend not believing that. I think when you start looking at the other options for what happened, you're left with, you're left with saying, no, the account that I see here is the most logical one. Because think about it, even if the disciples did take the body, which in itself, in itself would be illogical, and we've already seen some reasons for that, but then when you look at what history tells us, whether you're looking at something later on in history, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, or whether you're looking at something early on in church history, like the writing of the church historian Eusebius, right? And you see the ways in which the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ died. Are we to think it's logical that these men died gruesome deaths, preaching a Savior that they said resurrected, when they knew He didn't rise from the dead, but they had the carcass somewhere? Are we to think that it's logical to think that James, the son of Zebedee, would be slain by a sword under Herod's jurisdiction? Are we to think that Philip, who, according to historical accounts, was scourged and thrown into prison and crucified, or Matthew, who was slain with an axe, or Peter, who was crucified upside down, or James the Less, who was dashed in the head with a fuller's club. That was after, according to Josephus, by the way, after he was thrown down from a parapet wall, still alive. They take a fuller's club and dash him over the head, and the account gets even much more graphic than that from that point. Are we to think that Simon the Zealot, or Bartholomew, or Jude, that they were crucified and they were crucified for a lie, or that Mark who was dragged to pieces, or that Matthias who was stoned and beheaded, or that Thomas who appears to have been thrust through it with a spear in India. Are we to think it's logical that all of these men stole the body and they died preaching a resurrection that they knew was a lie? No. God in His great grace has furnished us with so many evidence of His self-authenticating, self-attesting Word. 
the most logical option that we have is the right answer. It's to believe what the angel said. He has risen just as He said. Just as He said. Well, briefly, I want to make our way through verses uh, 7 through 10. Call your attention to uh, a a few things briefly and we'll close at verse 10. The angel's message wasn't done. In verse 7, he tells the women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. In Mark's Gospel, we see the addition, And Peter. Remember, an angel is a ministering spirit who is sent by God. And God in His great compassion wants these disciples, the sheep who had been scattered, the disciple Peter, who had denied his Lord, he wants them to hear the good news. And in God's great compassion, when we look at Mark's Gospel, we see that the angel said, End Peter. As though to single out the one who denied the Lord in in such a grave way, but yet he was within the Lord's line of sight to be a recipient of the good news and the grace of God in Christ. And then they have this amazing task that well foreshadowed the task that would be given to the disciples. They have to go and share the good news with them. And they they get on the way, verses 8 and 9 read, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Doesn't that make so much sense? Like, okay, (laughs) we'll go. Like, fear, like, that angel was just telling us, and is Jesus alive? The joy, like he's alive, he's not in the tomb. You could just so imagine the mix of the emotions that they felt in that moment. So there they go, they heed the instruction of the angel, they go with fear and great joy, and they ran to report it to the disciples, and behold, Matthew writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, says, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Kyrate in the Greek. Could be rendered literally, as the New King James renders it, rejoice. Rejoice. But many attest to the fact that it was a common greeting in that day. So it's as though Jesus was saying, rejoice. But it is also a sense in which He was greeting them. It's as though He was saying, hello. (laughs) He meets them on the road and He tells them, rejoice. And they began to rejoice. What did they do? They came up and they took hold of his feet and they began to worship him. What tenderness. He greets them. He tells them to rejoice. And then they fall at his feet. They grab onto his feet, which is one of the many witnesses in the gospel accounts that Jesus was not just resurrected spiritually and he was a ghost. No, no, no. He had a physical frame that could be touched. He ate with his disciples post his resurrection. He, his resurrection was a physical resurrection. And the fact that they were able to hold on to his feet witnesses to that. And what do they do? They worship. Just like Thomas, who would say, My Lord and my God, and Jesus does not turn back such identification. He does not turn back such worship. He receives it because He is God the Son. And you can imagine their joy. They ran from the tomb, right? With what? Fear and great joy. But think how their joy was exponentially multiplied when they saw Jesus with their eyes. I can't even begin to paint for you the picture of the joy you will experience, son or daughter of God, who has been forgiven of all of your sins, having not trusted in your own works, but the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf, His death and resurrection, 
I cannot begin to paint for you the picture. I can begin, but I can't do much with it. The canvas is so big, and my paintbrush would be so small. What it's going to be like when you stand in the presence of your risen Savior. And who knows what he'll say first. How fitting would it be if he says something like, Rejoice. And you're right there in front of him. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Immeasurable by our human standards. Conversely, and this will be a call for everyone in this room who does not know Christ to come to Christ, I can't begin to paint, as it were, the picture of how inexpressibly terror-filled it would be to stand before this one and to have Him be your judge on that day when He has died on the behalf of sinners like us. I can't begin to depict how great the glory will be of that moment and I can't begin to depict how terror-filled the terror of that moment will be. I implore you, if you haven't come to the risen Savior who is alive and lives now and forevermore, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from trusting in self-righteousness. Turn away from sin and look to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins that He has secured through the payment of His own blood and the resurrection from the dead. They are... There, they fall at His feet, they worship Him. And we close with verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Seen so often in the Scripture, seen twice in our study in Matthew 28. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Look at the intimacy of Jesus' language. To use language from the writer of Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. As a matter of fact, he died so that they might be forever his brethren. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Sons of the living God, sons and daughters forever. And brethren. Oh, the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I close with calling our attention to some amazing implications of what we have studied. In light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, good news for all who are in Christ, you are not in your sins. You are not in your sins. Christ has been raised from the dead. Your sins have been paid for. The proof of purchase, as it were, the proof that the payment was accepted is in the empty tomb. You don't have to spend your life wondering, like, I wonder if that payment was sufficient. Oh, it was sufficient, all right. It was a good offering and a sufficient offering. And the proof of that is in the resurrection. You're not in your sins. I want you to know that your uh, justification was secured through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. Thanks be to God for the union we have with and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His resurrection, you are spiritually resurrected. That's the idea behind 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. That Peter says in the, pretty much the opening of his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection inextricably tied to your justification. The resurrection inextricably tied to your regeneration. The resurrection also is a good reminder of the power that is at work inside of a believer right now. 
that the same Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead, to use language from Romans 8.11, is inside of you, the person of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection, according to what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, is also a reminder to the whole world that there is coming a day of judgment. God has made that definitive statement. You can look in Acts 17 by raising Jesus from the dead. It's as though in the resurrection God said to the world, I want you to know, resurrection is coming. What the Bible calls the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The resurrection of the just, granted glorified bodies, so as to enjoy the glory of God forevermore to the fullest extent that we can. To be the the full humanity that God has called us to be with glorified bodies, conformed rightly and appropriately and as fully as we can be, conformed to the image of Christ. But then there's also a resurrection whereby those who have rejected the gospel and trusted in false ways to get to God or trusted in works, is coming a resurrection unto everlasting condemnation where the books will be opened according to Revelation 20 where the works that condemn individuals, not exonerate individuals, but condemn individuals, will be read out by the judge of all the earth. And those sentenced will be sentenced to the lake of fire. The resurrection is a reminder that both events are coming. The resurrection of the just and the unjust. The resurrection, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 3, is a reminder that God has vindicated the Son. That Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. It was God's definitive statement. He's not just the one who is accursed on the cross. He was accursed on behalf of sinners. He bore the wrath of God. But this is the declaration that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the Son of God. And it's also a reminder in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20-23 through 23, that He is the first fruits of those who have been resurrected from the dead. And even as Christ has been resurrected from the dead, so all who believe in Christ will be resurrected in like manner. Oh, what glory awaits the sons and daughters of the living God. So rejoice. He is here via the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the tomb is empty, you might say. It is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. And He's coming again. And there's coming a resurrection. And my encouragement to you as we close is let us live in light of the resurrection that has come and in light of the resurrection that is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Glorious day. What a glorious moment. We are so honored to behold as we have studied Your Word. Thank You for Your living Word which nourishes our hearts and refreshes our souls. Thank You for Your Word that is able to beget new life in those who hear it. That in a moment of time, a person can go from a place of unbelief to faith via Your Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray if there be anyone in this place who is in that place, Lord, the former, I pray You'd bring them to the latter. I pray that You'd bring them, Lord, from a place of unbelief to confident trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are in Christ, I pray that they would leave here and rejoice that Christ is risen, that the tomb is empty, and that the Savior is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for His people, and He is able to save His people to the uttermost. 
And He is a high priest who will never forsake His office. Thank You, Father, for the resurrection of Your Son. And thank You that we who deserve Your justice have been recipients of Your great grace and a coming resurrection. Oh, Father, help us to live in light of such blessed realities, past, present, and the new life that we have in the here and now, and such blessed future realities that await. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.